Hello and welcome to this episode 23 of the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack and this week I'm speaking to Peter Bilak, the editor and publisher and founder of Works That Work magazine. Uh, I'm off in Munich at the EDGE conference, that's the Editorial Changes conference, uh, which is running from today, Thursday the 9th of March through to Saturday the 11th of March and I'm going to be recording a series of conversations with magazine makers while I'm here which I'll release over the next few weeks on the Stack Podcast. Um, Peter was the first speaker at the conference this morning and he talked about his uh, social distribution model in which he gets readers of the magazine to become the distributors of the magazine and he speaks a little bit about that in the podcast but also about the reasons why he is finishing the magazine. So he's decided that issue 10 is going to be the last uh, which means that we have two issues left of the magazine before it finishes but he's keen to say it is not a sad ending this is something that is going to allow him to do other things instead so I grabbed hold of Peter when he just left the stage and got him to have a quick chat with me about what he's doing now and what's going to be coming in the future Alright, so I'm here with Peter Bilak, the um, the editor, the founder, publisher, and the publisher, the editor, founder, publisher of Works at Work magazine, Uh, and you have just stepped off stage uh, here in Munich, speaking about your work on the magazine. Um, I guess for anyone who's not seen the, the the mag before, it would be useful just to get a quick sort of overview of what it's all about. Yeah, it's a tricky question because I always describe the magazine differently depending on who I describe it to. Uh, in a design environment, I avoid calling it a design magazine. If I speak to non-designers, I call it a design magazine because uh, uh, it gives them a chance to describe kind of the wider role of what design means. Uh, but the tagline of a magazine is magazine of unexpected creativity, uh, which suggests that we're looking at pl- kind of overlooked places and we're looking at... Uh, uh, creativity that happens in places you don't normally consider, uh, not just geographically, but also in situations, often in very difficult uh, circumstances, uh, uh, and also not looking at only the latest things, but often looking at uh, forgotten historical ideas. Um, so it's a lot of marginal things, but that have a real impact on our lives to today still. So there's a relevance to it to, to now. And so thinking about some typical stories, I mean, of the things that you showed in the presentation just now. So, for example, the improvised ways that people during the siege of Sarajevo made their lives a little bit more livable. Right. Yeah, we had all kinds of stories about you know, what prisoners do to make their life more bearable in prisons. Uh, I just described uh, these post stamps in Bhutan, which uh, uh, they are remarkable, innovative post stamps developed in the 60s, but they were made as a fundraising method to bring uh, funds to build roads and schools and hospitals in Bhutan. Uh, so design that is put in use for completely different purpose than normally considered. Um, and uh, we kind of reverse the role. So we don't present design stories from the perspective of the maker, but from the user. And that's what allows us to talk about 
yeah, impact and uh, effect of design on people. And I find very often that when I speak to independent magazine makers and you say, so why did you start doing this? It's very often in response to something else. And so obviously when you say design magazine, and I guess the reason why you don't say design magazine to a lot of people is that you immediately start thinking of computer renders of buildings or amazing chairs or something. Right. There, there are two motivations. One is obviously the response to, and uh, I uh, again, my d- background is design, but I realized I don't re- read design magazines very much because uh, uh, it's very much a closed bubble that the designers talk about other designers, follow other designers, and uh, you rarely, you know, once in this world, you rarely discover something else. Uh, so I was hoping to, you know, if design hopes to be relevant for other people, you know, how to make it also, how to make the discussion relevant for other people. You never find, you know, the specialized design discussion in the mainstream media because it's too kind of specific. So you hope to find a way how to break this barrier. And, uh, you know, my personal motivation was my brother's an engineer. Was I, am I able to tell a design story for him who doesn't normally care about any artistic uh, design stuff? It just shows him how interesting this is and what, you know, how it possibly can change his life. Um, and that goes right to the heart of breaking out of these niches that you, you find magazines so often operate within because, again, as you said in your presentation, you have to fit within these certain categories. You're a men's magazine, you're about fishing or something, right. but you want to make something much broader than that. Yes, which is difficult because magazines are typically described by, by the audience. And if you look at our audience, and I often look at, the, you, know, you know, we have a luxury that I know most of our readers because we have their addresses and we know them. <laughs> uh, and it's amazing. Then you, you find, you know, engineering school in India and you find professional cycling team in Belgium and you find uh, a nurse in Arizona. And, uh, you know, there's hardly anything that connects these people. Uh, which tr- in traditional way, you know, not demographically, you know, not, uh, not by gender, by age, it's just their interest, you know, to find out more about this world. Uh, these are often more traveled people uh, and very curious people. And, um, but it would be very hard to, you know, to describe this group of people. So we operate somehow without a clear target group, which is probably a nightmare for traditional distri- <laughs> traditional publisher because uh, then you cannot sell the ads. And that's why, because we don't really need to sell the ads, uh, we sell the stories. And so our focus goes really on finding out these stories and finding out a way how to uh, make them accessible. And so you're freed by the fact that you don't have to uh, sell ads. So that, that gives you the, the uh, ability to go and do other things for reaching other readers, but then you've also given yourself a problem with that because then you have to physically reach those readers. So if you're talking about an engineering school in India, you have to be able to get your mags to that engineering school in India, and you've come up with a very clever way of doing that too. Well, yes, uh, it's, you know, we like to talk about a concept we started called social distribution, but, uh, you know, I put, I put disclaimer before that it's not the primary way of, uh, of uh, distributing the magazine. Right. We still, most of the, our income comes from subscriptions. So, you know, people online order uh, directly online and uh, they, things are shipped by post. But uh, about a third of, uh, distri- of our print run is distributed very informally. Uh, we like to always talk about logistics and, uh, you know, logistics is also uh, exploration of distribution is also not just subject of the magazine, but the case study on operation of the magazine itself. 
Um, so we provide this discount normally given to distributors to the readers, and uh, they're able to get you know bags of magazines and distribute in the social circle, uh, which you know nicely makes the connection. And we organize something what called the readers clubs, where people kind of uh, we connect to them via Skype or they organize small events locally. And we had fantastic events in Tehran, Iran, or in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, uh, where you know a group of 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 people get together and discuss these stories. Uh, often, you know, when stories are typically con connected to certain locations, um, and uh, I managed to attend some of those, as some of them made remotely, and some completely independently of us. So, which is nice that the, you know the magazine has this life of readers. The readers are so involved uh, with with the magazine that uh, they make it happen that's so exciting there's these things that are happening out there that are not even any part of you but it's based on the thing that you've made right yes. and so so this happens because a, a reader will find your magazine enjoy it they can then go to your websites and register to pick up some magazines from you correct and either pick up or just find a way how to get it there so in in case of uh, uh, there was a, a girl from uh, from iran who was really enthusiastic about it and wanted to bring it there uh, and it took some time because it had to go through, you know, through many people. Actually, I think we, it was there were four people in, involved in bringing it to to, to final location. Uh, so I haven't even met her, met her, uh, but we had a contact and we've had a finding way how to bring it. So as long as there was an interest, we managed to bring it even to most difficult places. I mean, in a way, that's even more exciting that you've got this chain of people the, the passing this cargo along to get to Iran. Yeah. A place yep. that you just would not have been able to reach otherwise. Correct, correct. And so you, you have a, a bit of a penchant for these uh, faraway places because the last issue was based in Bhutan. So is that the current, that's the current issue? That's yes, that's the current issue. So tell us, the, so what, what's in that issue and what, what made you want to go there? Well, um, Bhutan is an interesting place because uh, I think at the time when, you know, like a last, what is it? Uh, when was the global crisis? 2012, you know, people start looking for alternatives considering if this is the only way how to develop our economy uh, people are naturally interested in finding out what else is there and uh, Bhutan has been presented as one place which is small enough to, to be able to try different economical models and uh, you know the, the famous example is that you know they, they value uh, the development not just in terms of uh, growth of economy but in you know the, the impact to, to, the, to the lives and they call it the uh, you know, they have the happiness index, which consists of a lot of parameters, over 115 different criteria which can be measured. So I became interested in this, uh, what actually means for, you know, uh, running a country in this way. But at the same time, I was looking also at a kind of case study of a small place, which uh, it's an underdeveloped country by any standards. A, there's a lot of poverty by, by many standards how they able to learn from mistakes of others and skip some parts of development. For example, uh, we, we looked at the example of telemedicine, for example, that uh, Bhutan's road infrastructure is very poor, it had to do with Himalayas. You know, like it's very expensive to build roads in, in 7,000 meters high. So some I villages are so isolated that uh, it, it takes three, five, seven days to reach from normal hospital. So instead, they have to reconsider about how to bring uh, medicine there. And they're using, for example, drones to bring medicines uh, to, to, to places. Things that I haven't seen you know, made anywhere. You know, here we experiment with delivering pizza by drones or uh, using for all kind of strange purposes. There, like, it's really a matter of life and death. 
Um, and from, he, from there, you know, we, I was lucky enough to arrange interview with the Prime Minister uh, of Bhutan, and because Bhutan is very still kind of autocratic state, uh, it's a democracy, but run from it's an undemocratically established democracy, <laughs> uh, where the king decided that from day to day that uh, be, there will be democracy when, without anyone asking him. So it's the only place which has never been colonized. There's very little for, uh, foreign influence. Uh, it's, it's never been invaded by anyone. So it's this kind of strange, isolated place which develops on its own, and people understand that uh, it's in their hands. Um, so, and the larger story is that uh, uh, it managed to survive compared to other uh, Himalayan kingdoms because it managed to establish their national identity. Mm -hmm. They develop uh, their national language only recently. They developed their national clothing uh, recently. Uh, so, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the architectural style has been put in place. You know, people have to follow it. Um, in order to differentiate from neighbors and to develop a sovereign country which can prosper and develop. And it's the only country which uh, all energy is uh, sustainable and renewable. Uh, the aim is to use or produce organic food by 2030 only. Uh, so there's a lot of amazing examples and which attracted us to go there. Yeah, I, I've often heard it said that you, so to see the future, you go to the edges. So you, you look for the places around the edges where strange things are happening and that's very often where you can find the next things that are going to be right. happening. People are attracted to go to the biggest uh, players because they think they're economically the strongest and they can advance economy and advance ideas, but they're the slowest to, to change because of the size, they are not willing to. Changes are, can, be, uh, can be disturbing, can be troubling, and that's why it's a lot easier to do it in a small place, and Bhutan is a country of 700,000 people. Yeah, yeah. And so on your trip to Bhutan, you weren't just making a print magazine, you were also making a film. Right. It was not an idea from the beginning, uh, but uh, because there was a lot of planning involved and uh, you know, we, we, we scheduled a lot of interviews and often with uh, high uh, places, we wanted to record them. And once we were recording them on video, uh, uh, over time I realized that you know, we, could, we should do something else with this. So the idea of a documentary came only after we came back from Bhutan and we came back with terabytes of data. And we st I started processing them and see you know, how this can be organized in a coherent way. Uh, so by editing the articles, um, I noticed that there was this underlying theme uh, which could be developed also in different form. I never worked with film, so it was very exciting to, to, to start work with different medium. And there's a different way to tell the story in film or in magazine. So, and it's a lot more accessible way, so I, was, I became interested to see how we can reach a different uh, audience as well. Um, and possibly it's the beginning of something else you know, that we may work more with video in the future too. Because you've also decided that you're going to stop publishing the magazine. Correct, uh, yes. Um, I think somewhere halfway, I mean from the beginning already when I started, uh, I knew that you know, there will be an end. And I think it's uh, unrealistic not to consider this. You know, everything that starts has an end. Uh, but people usually so much focus on la launching things that they forget about it. Um, I, I was giving ourselves kind of objectives what we want to do and, uh, and what happens if we are uh, able to reach these objectives. And um, I don't think that magazine, I, I can personally make it much better than, than it is now. You know, uh, there are certain limits that uh, they are imposed. And, so uh, it's as good as it is, and I've done it what I could, and uh, that's why I thought you know, number 10 is kind of a logical step. 
uh, to wrap it around. And I think it's good to not to wait until you know you're forced to close it, but rather choose your ending. So I think it was about two years ago when I aimed towards number 10, and we made it public last year, well, this year, that uh, we'll have just two more issues, and uh, it will, that will be it. Yeah, 10, 10 does seem to be that magic number. There's, a, I think, the right journal in a very similar way, kind of midway through decided 10 issues and that's going to be us done. I did the previous magazine called Dodo Dodo and we did 20. So we did for <laughs> ten, 10 years, 10 years, uh, so twice the run. And now it seems to be like a 10 was just, just right. Yeah. I'm noticing a lot of magazines as well that are starting now with a built-in expiry date. So, and I think this is partly to do with Kickstarter. So, so many people fund through Kickstarter and they encourage you at the outset to say, well, what is a backer going to get for this? And so one of the rewards can be, give us this much money and you'll get all of our magazines and we're going to do six issues or 10 issues. So this kind of baked in end point, I think is becoming more common these days. Yes, I think it's a different time. Like uh, we recently, I was was getting a mortgage for a house and one of the questions was, when do you want to sell that house? The house that we haven't bought yet. Like, uh, <laughs> and it's an interesting way to look at it. Like, uh, okay, what do you, you know, how do you plan? How do you see yourself over a certain period of time? But the magazine, no, it's not a job that I need to protect. It's not something that I need to uh, be very uh, attached to. I mean, it was an exciting run and I'm really pleased for it. But uh, I think it's healthy to, dis- to detach from things that you make because otherwise you identify too much with something and doesn't allow you to do something else. So I do believe that ending this allows a lot of other things to happen so it's not a sad end it's really kind of a i think it's a positive one it's that freeing force again it's like you don't have to sell ads so you can do other stuff you know this you don't have to make this magazine in order to buy that house you want to buy so you can do other things right um that means then that we do still have two issues left correct Okay, can you talk about what's coming up with the, the next two? Well, uh, the next one comes quite soon. It's already next month. Um, and, uh, you know, like most of issues, it covers something. That, there's always an element of surprise. You know, like, uh, uh, we, and it also makes it difficult to operate on a longer, t- longer run. How to keep surprising people when they know they need to expect a surprise. It's <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> a very difficult how to deliver something that they haven't heard about. Um, but I became uh, interested in kind of the disconnection that uh, in my circle of friends, uh, which is a lot of people involving culture and design and art, uh, they are completely um, against any sporting activity. And uh, they, they don't see, they, they would never watch a football game and they would never see kind of a, a purpose to it. It's kind of a completely lower uh, end of their specter and it's not something that they can connect to. So we start looking at sports as something completely diff- different. Does it allow these kind of examples of unexpected creativity? Uh, so it's an f- issue fully about sports and games, uh, which again, I think we managed to bring stories that, uh, for example, how football is used for peace reconciliation process in Colombia, for example, between opposing forces, how rebels play football in mixed teams with government forces, you know, uh, something you haven't heard about. Uh, and we would go there, you know, in the middle of jungle where people put their Kalashnikovs on the, on the ground and start playing football together. Uh, and, you know, what it actually means. Or, you know, we have, you know, uh, or also about, you know, like, uh, how sports are designed, uh, you know, like, uh, so, um, yes, it will be sports and games. And uh, the last one, uh, I'll keep it uh, open for now. There, there are a lot of, <laughs> lot of things. But well, you've got to find surprise, right? Yes. Okay. Excellent. Peter, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Steve.
Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks again to Peter for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, this conference is going to be running from the 9th to the 11th of March. So if you're listening to this on Friday the 10th or Saturday the 11th, uh, you can actually see what's going on live via the live blog. That's at Edge Conference. That's edch-conference.com forward slash blog or we're also going to be covering it on the stack blog it's not going to be live because i think that's a little bit too stressful but we're going to be having roundups of each of the day's uh, conversations and presentations so go to the stack blog to check that out uh, you can also follow us on soundcloud and itunes just search for stack magazines and you should find it within those two places uh, or basically anywhere that you get your podcasts so if you've enjoyed this one and you want to make sure that you hear more conversations coming from this year's edge conference uh, go and follow us there and we will deliver the episodes straight to you as soon as they're ready okay thanks for listening and we'll be back with more next week Thank <laughs> you.